It's an existentialist doctrine. And it's this idea that you were born into the world with endless possibilities, endless potential. A myriad of options are available to you. You get to choose what person you would like to be. And it really could be anything. It can get so extreme that a school in Melbourne has now respected and accommodated the wishes of a year eight girl who chooses to identify as a cat. She's now treated as a cat in that classroom. In our culture, our identities are not given to us, but they are discovered. They are not part of design, but they are fluid and ever-changing. And the key driving factor is how I identify as the most important. And not only should you respect it, but you should accommodate it and you should celebrate it. And the defining person in this equation is the individual. And the absence of the Creator God becomes more and more deafening as our culture continues down this path. But the one who makes, made the universe does not accommodate madness. When we buy into lies and attempt to impose our own will upon the laws of nature, not only are we damaging ourselves, but we are causing a huge affront to our Maker. You're either being built up in wisdom or you are being built up in folly. You are either being built up in order or you are being built up in confusion. And you are either being built up in Christ or you are being built in chaos. The only sure foundation, the only solid rock to which you can build your house, indeed your whole identity, must be in the true and living God. This stone either causes a person to bow down to it or in worship or they stumble over it and are broken by it. And the call of the age is not to turn to our culture, to bend our ears to their priests and to their prophets, but to come to the Lord Jesus as a living stone, to find your place in his church, this grand cathedral, this wonderful temple. And this is exactly what Peter has for us in this passage. And I have three points that I want to share with you guys. My first point is this, rejected by men, chosen by God. My second point, a holy priesthood. And my third point, a stone of stumbling and defense. Let's get into it. Starting from verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder's rejection has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, you know, the theme for our series is elect exiles. And Peter is going to continue to play on this theme. And we remember elect exiles kind of means uh, chosen outsiders. And he is reminding us first, Peter, who we are coming to. And who are we coming to? Jesus. And it's really important that we get Jesus right. The aspect uh, of Jesus that some Christians can quickly forget about is this idea that Jesus was rejected by men. 
He is called here by Peter, a living stone rejected by men. We have to remember this. We don't come to Jesus, the living stone honored by men. We aren't coming to the one who was given prominence by men or lived within the decorum of polite and respectable conversation. Christ is the living stone crucified by men. That's important. He was rejected, despised, mistreated. His claims were rebuffed. His followers hunted down and his message outlawed. And the audience that Peter was writing to was the very audience that was having this happen to them. They were exiled members of the Jewish community. They'd been cast out of the synagogues, out of their entire communities. They had been disowned by their families and in some cases beaten or killed. And this should not surprise Christians because Jesus himself faced the same treatment, did he not? John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And yet, despite the way that the world treated Jesus, what did God think of him? He was not rejected by God, too. It says here that he was, in God's sight, chosen and precious. Now, that word precious comes from the Greek word entomos, which means highly honored, noble, respectable, first in rank. Here we see that God and the world are at odds. What the world considers shameful, God considers honorable. What the world rejects, God chooses. And brothers and sisters, don't be dismayed when they say all manner of untrue things about you, when they slander and mock you, for the world treated Jesus the same. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. But you belong to a different world, to a different building. But unlike the buildings around us that are built by cold, dead stones, we are built up by living stones. And Peter sees us as being built up as a spiritual house, and we are referred to as living stones. And like stones, we are immovable, unchangeable, weighty and strong, but that's not of our own doing, but God's doing. Our security lies in the fact that we have been placed in an eternal building. Matthew Henry says this, he says, this house, this spiritual house is daily built up, every part of it improving, And the whole supplied in every age by the addition of new particular members. It's a powerful metaphor, isn't it? This way that God builds the church. And he builds his church via living stones. He places each block deliberately. They're there for a reason. He considers the building as a whole. Every block placed at the right spot and at the right time. To build this wonderful grand cathedral, this temple of unparalleled splendor. Now, if you guys know the Bible, you know that this theme of temple runs like a thread throughout the entire pages of Scripture. From the first dwelling place of God, where was the first dwelling place of God in Genesis chapter 2? Eden, right. It was in Eden, the Garden of Eden, where uh, the heaven and earth met. Uh, You see the tabernacle. Even in its design of the tabernacle, it is deliberately reflecting the design of Eden. The temple built by Solomon or the temple built when the Jews came back from exile, or when King Herod built the temple that Jesus saw, this thread runs through the whole Bible, and the temple was the place where God's people would go to offer up sacrifices, to atone for their sins, to praise God and to seek His favor. It was a place where God's glory rested, and it rested with this Shekinah glory. It was a powerful, powerful glory. And in the innermost sanctum was the Holy of Holies. Priests would wear bells, at the bottom of their robe, so everyone could hear them walking around. 
Sometimes they would have a rope tied around their waist just in case they did something wrong and the power of God slew them there in the Holy of Holies and they needed to pull them out via the rope. The bells kind of helped them know, oh yeah, he's still walking around, he's good, he's good. Like Eden, the temple was the meeting place between God and his people. It was the bridge between heaven and earth. Why? Because that was the place of the very near presence of God. And yet the glory departed. Ezekiel saw it depart. And despite the grandeur of the temple, what happened to it? It was stripped bare. The gold was torn down from its walls. The instruments of worship carted off to foreign lands. It was desecrated many times by God's enemies. And when Jesus went to the cross to die, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Shortly after Peter wrote his letter, the city of Jerusalem would be sacked by Rome and this grand temple would be torn down. Not one stone would be left upon another, literally. That's what the Romans did to it just as Jesus prophesied. And yet, this was all according to God's plan. Because while man may build their house for God, may build their temple to try to contain God, God was building a different temple, his own temple, an eternal temple to dwell with his people. And what is that one temple? It's the church. God is building this great cathedral, built up of redeemed people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Ephesians 2.22, Paul says this, In him you also, that is in Christ, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A temple. A spiritual house is all the elect, those who have been born again, washed in Christ's blood, clothed in his righteousness, and made holy forever. This is the holy universal church we read about when we recited the Apostles' Creed. This is the blessed company of all faithful people you may hear when you go to an Anglican church. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, it's the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the Head. This church is rejected just as Christ was. And yet... It is precious and honored in the sight of God. And Peter is not satisfied unless the people are members of the one true church, the company of all believers who are grafted in at the moment of conversion, because outside of this church, there is no salvation. You must be a part of this church, the church that unites all believers everywhere. And so what kind of people do we expect this church to be? What does this church look like? What is her function? Why has God set her aside to be this way in the world? Well, Peter's going to tell us, verse 5, and it's to be a holy priesthood. And that's my second point, a holy priesthood. Let's pick up in verse 5. Peter says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is quite remarkable, isn't it? It is a spiritual house of priests. Now, one of the key roles, we first we've got to understand what priests are. The Levitical priests in the Old Testament, their role was representation and mediation. I'll explain what those mean. They represented the people before God by acting on their behalf. 
They would bring the sin offering on behalf of all of Israel and they would be the representative of Israel, the great high priest at that time. Well, sorry, the high priest. The great high priest is Jesus. But the high priest would go and offer this. They would go into the near presence of God in the temple. But they were also the ones who would mediate God's grace to you. They would intercede for you on God's behalf by offering the sacrifice for you. You didn't offer the sacrifice. The priest would offer the sacrifice for you. And so who were the priests here in verse 5? We actually see in verse 9, next week's passage, that they are royal priests. But there's a reason why we don't call our pastors priests. I'm not a priest. Shem's not a priest. Although we are one. But the reason you don't call us priests is the same reason I don't call you priests. Because we all are priests. We all have become priests when we enter into the new covenant. What does that mean? It means you no longer need a sinful man or a sinful woman to mediate God to you. You don't need that. You have access to the Father that isn't mediated by someone else because Jesus is your great high priest and because of his once and for all sacrifice of cleansing, we are given access into the Holy of Holies. Have a look. Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. I'll get the verse up. Sorry, verses 14 and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is an amazing passage because you don't just push through the temple courts when you come towards God. You don't just pass through the curtain and approach the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. In Christ, you approach the very throne room of God. We come so near as Isaiah did when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. You can come that close to God. You don't need another man. You don't need another woman to act on your behalf. No believer in Christ has greater access to the Father than any other. If you indeed you are in Christ. Yes, God has given to the church pastors and elders, but they're appointed to teach the church from Holy Scripture. But pastors do not have greater access to God than you do. Nor are we given more of Christ's sacrifice because that's not even possible. We are all members of this priesthood and as such, Peter says, you should offer the kind of sacrifices a priest would. Luther says this, all we who are Christians are priests. The theologians call this idea the priesthood of all believers. From the most lowly to the most prominent, all of us have the same access. We can all walk up the mountain with Moses into the blazing inferno and you can meet with God with no fear or trepidation. When God descended on that mountain and anyone who touched it shall die, you can walk up that mountain with confidence covered by the blood of Christ. You don't need another person to walk up that mountain for you. You can go. And in your hands, bring spiritual offerings. Not that those offerings can make you holy, not that they can make you righteous or redeem you or justify you, because they are not even slightly worthy of Jesus. For all we can give up, all we can sacrifice and perform, It is completely unacceptable to God. The scriptures call them filthy rags. And if you want 
you can look up what that actually means. It's a bit more gnarly, but I won't say it here in church. But do you see what Peter says here? We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is the only way that God can accept anything you bring before Him because it is sanctified by Christ. When Christ is in us, all our offerings are made acceptable to Him. It is the blood of Christ that makes all we do in service of God and His kingdom acceptable and precious to our Heavenly Father. So what are these spiritual sacrifices? It's kind of important. We kind of want, need to know that, don't we? If Peter is making this, making this bold claim, I mean, who here is, is this the first time you have ever been referred to as a priest? Show of hands. The first time you've heard that. Yeah. It is like a foundational doctrine, but it doesn't get taught on much. But you are a priest. And therefore, you must bring spiritual sacrifices. So the question is, well, what on earth is it? What do I bring before God? Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We offer up our very bodies to God, all that we are in spiritual worship to Him. Wherever He wants us, we make sure we go. Whatever He calls us to do, we ensure that we do it. And we worship Him with our bodies. We don't give our bodies up to passions. We don't give our bodies up to all their lusts. We instead tame them and bring them into obedience to God as our good and spiritual sacrifice. But it's more than just that. In Revelation 8.3, the Apostle John speaks of our prayers to God as a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews 13.15-16, very interesting phrase. Uh, very interesting passage, sorry. Read with me. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The writer of Hebrews has given us two things here. First one, our praise of God. First way, when you speak with people. In your conversations with people, every time you bring heartfelt, genuine praise to God, that's a spiritual sacrifice to Him. Every time the worship leader comes up and leads you in a song, all your singing of praise are a sacrifice pleasing to Him. And just like all of our offerings, our praise is made pure to God through the blood of Christ. And even though our singing and our words fail to match the majesty of God, even those half-hearted attempts are made acceptable through Christ. How good is that? Because imagine if you had to sing praises to God such as He deserved. I don't think any of us can do it. Well, I know for a fact none of us could. But don't let that cause you to be apathetic or become lazy because you can very quickly go, oh, well, if Christ sanctifies everything I do, then I'll just give Him some half-hearted worship. Don't do it. Next time you feel that pull to go through the motions with worship, or you find yourself singing the words, but your brain is somewhere else, fight hard against it. Because offer your spiritual sacrifice as best as you can, knowing that there is grace for where you fail. 
Hebrews also calls the second thing doing good through sharing of resources. Sacrifices, he says, that are pleasing to God. Instead of becoming stingy with the resources God gives to us, we are genuine and kind-hearted towards our brothers and sisters. We give generously of what we have. And it's not just money, it's time, resources, food, whatever is required. And these are pleasing sacrifices to our God. Let's keep pushing on. Romans 15, 16 even sees the gospel ministry, Paul sees his gospel ministry to the Gentiles as a form of sacrificial worship. That means every conversation we have about the gospel, spiritual worship, every soul who converts is another action of spiritual worship. Every time we offer our minds to the renewing and hearing of the word preached, or we're studying at home our Bibles, we are offering up spiritual sacrifices. Every time we love each other with the brotherly love that Peter talks about in chapter one, we are offering up spiritual sacrifices. This is what a church of priests looks like. A church zealous for good works, offering their sacrifices to God through Christ. To some, this will be a wonderful community, a community of joy, a community of peace, where no one strives for their own, but lives only to the glory of their Father above. But for others, our joy and security in Christ will stink. It'll be offensive and they will try to tear you down. And this is my third point, a stone of stumbling and offense. Let's round off our scripture. Verse six to eight. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now here, Peter is quoting Isaiah 28, 16, and he's speaking of Jesus. Now this word cornerstone means literally to set all the angles. When you are building any building, you have to, especially during this time, you have to lay the cornerstone. And it's the stone that goes in the corner of the building. And that sets all the angles for the rest of the building. And you now have a reference point. So you can do all your measurements and they all come back to the cornerstone. You know that your building will be plumb and it's going to be structurally sound and it won't fall down. But you think about it, that's for designing anything. What happens when an architect puts his first pen to the paper? Well, wherever that first point goes on the paper is the cornerstone of that paper, because everything has to measure back to that first point he puts down when he puts his pen down. And that is what Christ is. He is the cornerstone, the most important stone, the most important reference point. And Peter's point is this. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then he is the point of reference for everything. All things are measured to him. All things hold together because of him. He is the center of all truth claims. He is the dividing line between reality and fiction. If you are not built upon this stone, by necessity you are built on a faulty foundation and it will crumble underneath you. To reject Jesus is to find yourself at odds with the world that God has made. And Peter says here, the stone that the builders rejected will become the very stone that they will stumble over and destroy themselves over. And so who are the builders? The Jewish leaders during Jesus' ministry, they were the ones who were building up the people of God. And yet when God came and laid down the cornerstone of this building, 
They rejected him. They did not want that building. They did not want that reference point. They wanted a different building. And the kingdom was going to be taken away from those builders and it was going to be given to others. This is exactly what Jesus says. Matthew 21, 42 to 44. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, it cannot be overstated just how divisive Jesus was. I cannot overstate it. Right from the beginning, when Jesus was presented at the temple in Luke 2.34, he was prophesied over, and listen to the language of this prophecy. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. The reason the Jewish leaders stumbled over Christ, Peter tells us, is because they disobeyed Scripture. And you might not think that is the first thing that your brain would go to. But they were not interested in giving Jesus the light of day. They were unswerving in the dedication to their traditions. Peter's referred to them already as the futile ways handed down by their forefathers. It's blinded them. And so they stumbled. This cornerstone was not a marvelous thing to them. The thing that God was doing was not marvelous to them. It seriously offended them. It angered them. It ticked them off. It made them murderous. And everywhere the church went, these people maligned and slandered them. They pursued them and in some cases killed them. And you have to put yourself in the place of Peter's audience. They are converted Jews, elect exiles. Their very existence was an offense to their family. Their very existence was an offense to their community. And Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That word destined quite literally means appointed or assigned. Peter's point is this, it ought not to discourage his audience because this was foretold long ago. The scriptures are true and describe the Jewish reaction to the Messiah in meticulous detail. And you can see as you read the pages of scripture how Jesus was going to be received. He was going to be despised, a man of sorrow, rejected and pierced for our transgressions. And the irony was that the Jewish leaders searched the scriptures seeking eternal life and they could not see themselves written into those very pages. And for all who stumble at the word of Christ, God has appointed destruction. As Jesus says, they will be broken into pieces. And this isn't merely true just for the Jewish leaders who rejected him, but for all of us. For all the disobedient who stay determined in their rejection and contempt for the gospel of Jesus. God has appointed them to destruction. God knows who they are. They are foretold of long ago in the pages of Holy Scripture. Whoever falls on this stone, Jesus says, will be broken to pieces.
How do we respond to that? What role does Jesus play in your life? Is Christ the chief cornerstone? Have you built your life on Him, the sure foundation? Are you built up as a household with the rest of the saints in your community? Does everything you do within your life have some reference point back to Jesus? Or is He a rock of offense? Do you find yourself stumbling over His words? Do you get offended at His claims? Do you find yourself having to explain the things he, say, he says away? Pretending he doesn't mean what he clearly says. And in our passage today, Peter is doing two things. He's either comforting you, you have built your house on the right foundation, or he is warning you, you have built your house on the sand. You have stumbled over this cornerstone, come back. And our culture rejects Jesus as the cornerstone. And as they have done that, you can see the effects of that happening in their lives. They've given themselves over to all manner of shameful things, things that we cannot even speak about. Here's either someone to build your life on or someone to stumble over. It's either Christ or it's chaos. There is no middle ground. Our society is hell-bent on building their own temples. They don't want this building. They want a different building. They want temples to self-expression, sexuality, pleasure, greed, knowledge, and power. And when they come to Jesus and they come to his claims, how do they react? Exactly as Peter says, offense. They're ticked off. They're offended. They're angry. They're livid. They stumble over him. Brothers and sisters, that cannot be us. Do not let their lies seep into your souls so when you come to Jesus, you find yourself offended at him. You find yourself stumbling over him. Do not give in to the lies of the world. Peter was warning his audience not to fret. The Jews, yes, they are opposing you, but they are destined to do so. But in the same way, he's warning us, do not fret over the opposition of our culture, for they stumble over this cornerstone for the very same reason. They disobey the word. Christian, you have to stop being ashamed of the gospel. You have to stop. It's going to offend people. It's okay. It's going to trip them up. It's going to cause them to stumble because they disobey the word just as they were destined to do. But for those who are being saved, you know what our attitude is? We don't stumble over this stone. This stone is chosen and precious, isn't it? Build your life on him. Come to him daily. Rest in his promises. Come into the temple of God, come into the church and offer your spiritual sacrifices to him. Be found in him, built up and rooted in the family of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a sure foundation, a cornerstone with which we can set all the angles, with which we can build our lives and our churches. And indeed, we know that we are being built up into this wonderful church that you have given to us. Father, I pray that we would not let the lies of this world seep into our minds and cause us to stumble over the things we find in your word. I pray, Lord, that when we read your word, we would not find ourselves falling and falling, offended and angry and livid, or just reinterpreting everything until it fits with what we want. 
Father, would we fall upon your word and be built up by your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for those who may not know you. Lord, I pray that they would no longer stumble over your son, Jesus, but that they would decide that today's the day to be built up in him. Today's the day to become a living stone and to be a part of this grand movement. I pray, Lord, that you would move their hearts to repentance and that they would believe and trust in your son, Jesus. And for us, Lord, who have been following you, whether for a short time or for a long time, I pray that we would rid our hearts of lies and that we would see your son as precious and chosen. We thank you, Lord, for all the amazing things you do. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.